of our three services on Easter weekend. Uh, you should see the shocked look on people's faces when I walked in dressed like I'm dressed tonight. I, so I tell people, when you see me like this, either somebody's getting married, somebody's getting buried, or it's Easter. So this is Easter weekend. And we are really, really, really thrilled that you are here. And I want to welcome those who are at our other campuses and those who are watching online. We are really honored to have you with us. I don't know that I've ever been more excited about an Easter weekend than I am today. I don't know that I've been more excited about a message than I am today. And let me tell you why. Our life is not just made up of days. Our life is made up of decisions. As a matter of fact, various Internet sources estimate, listen to this, an adult makes about 35,000 remotely conscious decisions every day. Now, this may sound ridiculous. You ready for this? We make 226 decisions every day just on food. That's amazing. I mean, right now, some of you, you're wondering, so what am I going to do after this service is over today? Where are we going to eat? What restaurant are we going to do uh, we're going to go to and, and, and just think about all the choices we have to make as we go through life from the time you're born to the time you die life is all about choices there are philosophical choices financial choices vocational choices marital choices political choices what are we going to eat what are we going to buy what are we going to believe who am I going to marry what am I going to do for a living what college am I going to go to? And when I decide where I'm going to go to college, what am I going to major in? And then once I major in that major, if I don't like that major, then what am I going to do? I mean, it's decisions after decision after decision. How many children will we have? And when we have them, what are their names going to be? How am I going to spend my time today? How are we going to spend our money? And every choice has one thing in common, if you think about it, and that is once you make a choice, it eliminates any other choice you could have made. If you marry her, you don't marry her. If you marry him, you don't marry him. You go to that school, you don't go to that one. You major in that vocation, you don't get to do that vocation. Every choice eliminates all other choices. In other words, every decision you make in life has a consequence. That No decisions ever made in a vacuum. Once you make a decision, it has consequences. There are reactions to every action. Now, we know that the essence of liberty is to choose. And what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the most important choice I believe that every person on planet Earth has to make at some time in their life because this is a spiritual choice that has eternal consequences. You say, why do you believe that? I believe that because of something Jesus said in the last words that he ever spoke. Now, if you're a guest of ours today, we have been in a series, one of the most enjoyable series I've ever done. We have been in a series that we're calling the bucket list. Everybody has a bucket list. We all know we're going to die. And I want you to imagine that you've just been told maybe last week you've got one year to live. If you knew that, you knew you had to get your affairs in order, then there would be certain things that you would make sure you would do before you died. We've all got these things, right? You, maybe you've written them down. Maybe you haven't. Maybe they're in your heart and your mind. But we know what they are. That one day I want to go there. One day I want to do this. One day I want to see that. One day I want to experience this. We all have things that we want to do before we die, but that's not what this series is about. This bucket list is not about the things that you would like to do before you die. I believe there are seven things everybody better make sure they do before they die or you're not ready to die. I didn't make this up. 
I didn't just pick this out of thin air. I believe that this came exactly and directly from Jesus. Because in the last six hours of his life, Jesus made seven statements from the cross. And he didn't just make those statements willy-nilly. He wasn't talking just to hear himself talk. He wasn't talking just to give himself something to do. I firmly believe that what Jesus was doing was he was telling us, these are the things you better make sure you check off before you die. You're not ready to die until these things are on your bucket list and all of these things are checked off. And by the way, if this is your first time to hear any of these messages, you can go to our website at Cross Point Church and just go to our website there and you can go back and listen and catch up on all those other messages. But I believe maybe the most important thing that Jesus did and the most important thing Jesus said is what we're going to look at tonight. So if you brought a copy of God's Word or you have a, an iPhone or a smart pad or whatever it is you use, I want you to turn to a gospel called Luke. Now, if you don't know much about the Bible, it'll make it very easy. The Bible's divided up into two parts. There's the Old Testament and there is the New Testament. The New Testament begins with four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're in Luke chapter 23. Let me tell you kind of what's going on. Go back 2,000 years. It's just another Friday in Jerusalem, except the smell of death is in the air. Outside the city walls, just north of the Damascus Gate, in what might have been called Execution Square, there are three crosses standing beside the highway. Three men are dying. Three men are being put to death. Three men are being crucified. Now, in and of itself, that was not unusual. 30,000 Jewish men got crucified. It was a common kind of almost an everyday occurrence. But this day was most unusual because the most unusual man who ever lived was being crucified. Now, here's what's kind of interesting. This man, who we know named Jesus, he was being crucified between two thieves. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us who arranged that. The Bible doesn't tell us who made that decision or that happened, except we do know it was a fulfillment of Scripture because the prophet Isaiah predicted 750 years before that the Messiah would be crucified with what we called malefactors. But today, we're not going to focus so much on the man in the middle. Today, what I want to do is I want to focus on the two men on either side of that cross because this story tells us the one thing you better make sure is on your bucket list, and that is to make the right choice about where you're going before you die. And this is the point I want to make. You don't know when you're going to die unless you commit suicide. You don't know how you're going to die unless you commit suicide. You don't know where you're going to die unless you commit suicide. But assuming you don't do that, you don't know anything about those things about death. You just know that you are going to die. And here's the point. You may not get to choose where. You may not get to choose when. You may not get to choose how. But you do get to choose where you go before you die. If you make the right choice. There was a man by the name of Ifakar Hussein, and he can give testimony to that. Ifakar Hussein was on the Klein Avenue Bridge on an off-ramp, and he was listening intently to his GPS on his, on his cell phone. Well, the bridge was lined with orange barrels and cones, and there was these big signs that, were, that said, Road Closed. But he chose to ignore the barriers, and he chose to listen to his GPS. He drove his car right off a ramp to a bridge that no longer exists, 
He plunged 38 feet where his car on impact exploded into flames, killing his wife, and he barely escaped. And the reason why that happened was because he made the wrong choice. He chose to listen to his ears instead of believing his eyes. You better make sure before you die that on your bucket list, you're ready to make the right choice. Two men on either side of Jesus on that Good Friday died. One made the wrong choice. He'll be separated from God forever. One made the right choice. He is with God right now. Now listen to me carefully. You will make that choice. You don't get to sit on the fence. You don't get to play neutral. You don't get to say, well, I'm not a Democrat or Republican. I'm an independent. No, this time you've got to choose sides. And you will make that choice about Jesus one way or the other. Now, if you're sitting there and you're saying, well, I'm at least interested enough in what you've said, would you please tell me how to make sure that I make the right choice? Absolutely will, because there are three simple things you need to do. Number one, you must recognize your personal guilt. You've got to recognize your personal guilt. Now, there was something unusual that happened at this crucifixion. Let me tell you why. Most of the time, when you went to a crucifixion, Nobody that was being crucified said a word. And the reason why they didn't say a word was not because they didn't have anything to say. It was because they couldn't talk. They were struggling just to survive, just to breathe, just to bear the excruciating pain, the dehydration, the slow-dying agony. But amazingly, these two thieves on either side of, of Jesus, they start this dialogue. They, they, they begin to talk. And it begins when one of the criminals begins hurling insults at Jesus. We're in Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Listen to what he said. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Now, that word for hurled insults at ults is kind of cleaned up in the English language. The Greek language is actually the word blasphemo. It gives us the word blasphemy. In other words, he was doing more than just kind of insulting Jesus. He wasn't just telling Jesus how ugly he looked or, or how, how bad he smelled or anything like that. He was using every profane, every vile word you could think of. He was calling Jesus every name in the book. And he was taking out his punishment on Jesus. You say, why was he doing that? Well, that's a different conversation. But at this point, the other man had heard enough. He had heard this man rag on Jesus enough. He didn't understand what his problem was with Jesus, but now he's had enough, and so he gave this response. One of the criminals, let's see, here we go. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We're punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now, let me just stop. I want you to understand something. Neither one of these guys were Boy Scouts. Neither one of these guys were good guys. As a matter of fact, when you go back and read what Matthew called them and what Mark called them as well as what Luke called them, they all used different words to describe these men. They were called thieves. They were called robbers. They were called insurrectionists. They were called malefactors. They were called bandits. They were called rebels. They were called criminals. They were called murderers. Now, Normally, they're just referred to as thieves. That's kind of what we read. But they're far more than thieves. As a matter of fact, Luke uses the word. The, Luke, the word that Luke uses here is a word that was used for, for, for professional criminals and members of the underworld. In, in other words, let me put it to you this way. They were mafia men. They were gang members. 
they would slit your mother's throat and they wouldn't think one thing about it today. We'd call them thugs. We'd call them terrorists. We'd call them assassins. We'd call them cutthroat killers. We're not talking about misdemeanors here. We're talking about felonies of the highest order. We're talking about the worst fellows you can imagine. I mean, they were bad dudes. They'd kill you. They'd kill your mom. They'd kill your family. They'd do it for profit. They would do it for fun. Sometimes they would do both because there's one thing that everybody knew. The Roman government didn't crucify people for chewing gum in school. They didn't crucify people for jaywalking. If the Roman government crucified you, there was something really wrong. And by the way, they didn't even just crucify thieves. So evidently, whatever these men had done, they were guilty of the death penalty. Now, most likely, the one crime that kind of tipped the scale and, and, and got them crucified was they were insurrectionists. They had committed the ultimate no-no. There was one thing that would get you crucified just like that. You better not rebel against the Roman authorities. You better not say anything negative about Caesar. You better not even hint that you did not like the Roman Empire. And evidently, they had rebelled against the Roman government. Now, believe it or not, that's where you and I come in. You say, what do you mean? Yeah, that, this is where we come in. Because, see, here's what we're doing right now. This is what we're all doing in this room. We're looking at those thieves being crucified with Jesus. And, 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 and you know, we don't just need to see them. We need to see us. Now, you may object because you say, wait a minute, what you mean you're comparing me to those thieves? You're comparing me to those thugs and those criminals, those insurrectionists? And you're saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed a felony. Well, wait a minute, let's get the big picture. These men are not just dying for a crime. They're dying in sin. They were rebels against the government. Now, that's what got them crucified. But they were rebels against God, and that's why they were dying. Because good people die. People that don't steal die. People that don't murder die. People that don't rebel against the government die. They were being crucified for their crime, but they were dying because of their sin. And that is exactly what one criminal recognizes. Because he looks at this man, remember what he said? He said, don't you fear God? Now, that raises a question, wait a minute, what's God got to do with this? I mean, you're guilty of what you've done, yes. You're guilty of what you've done, yes. Well, what does God have to do with all this? Here's the point. We may not be guilty of a worldly crime, but we're all guilty of the spiritual crime of rebelling against God and rejecting His Son. And here's what happened. This one criminal finally realizes his guilt. He says, you know what? I'm getting exactly what I deserve. I am a criminal. I deserve to be hanging up here. Now, I get it. I realize this is the 21st century. We're living in, you know, a no-fault world. We have no-fault insurance. So it doesn't matter now, you know, whether you're in an automobile accident or you're seeking a divorce or you get, hand, you get your hand caught in the cookie jar. It doesn't matter today. It's always somebody else's fault. You're just a victim. It's just because of bad circumstances. It's just because you didn't get a break, and you're really not to blame. And here's what I want you to understand. This is so important. As you hear this story and you see this story, if you do not see yourself as one of these men hanging on the cross, if you don't realize today that you are as guilty of rebelling against God and you're just as guilty of sinning against God as these men were, listen to me carefully. If you do not see yourself in the same spot these men were, I'll guarantee you one thing, 
you'll never come to God. Never. You'll never come to God on his terms. You'll never, ever have the relationship with God that God wants you to have. See, here's what this criminal finally realized. He looked at this other guy and he said, how in the world can you say this to him? We're getting what we deserve, but this man has done absolutely nothing wrong. Now listen, if you don't hear anything else, I want you to know what I'm about to tell you. The lights come on. And now this criminal finally realizes it's my crime. It is my crime that nailed me to the cross. But it is my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It was his crime that nailed him to the cross. But it was his sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. And the first right choice you've got to make before you die is the choice. You better come to a point where you realize, I am a sinner before God. I am guilty before God. Yes, I've done things wrong. Yes, I've said things wrong. Yes, I've done things I shouldn't have done. Yes, I've not done things I should have done. And that is a cause of separation between me and God. And until I realize, no matter how good I thought I was or how good other people say I am, if I don't realize I am just as guilty before God as those two criminals hanging on that cross, you will never come to God. Never. So first step you've got to take, you've got to realize personal guilt. Now the second choice you have to make is you've got to request spiritual grace. You've got to request spiritual grace. Now just reading Luke's gospel, you wouldn't realize the unbelievable transformation that's taking place in the heart of this criminal. Because thank God Matthew adds to the story. This good guy was not always the good guy. Because Matthew tells us that just a little bit earlier, he was ridiculing Jesus. He was cursing Jesus. They were, it was a tag team. They were teaming up against Jesus. Listen to this verse in Matthew 27. In the same way, the rebels, that's both of them, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. What happened? I mean, somewhere along the way, this transformation takes place. Condemnation had turned into adoration. How in the world did that happen? How did this man go from being teammates with this guy to being an opponent of this guy? How did this man go from denouncing Jesus to defending Jesus? Somewhere, something had changed. The criminal is about to become a convert. Well, what happened? Because when anybody was crucified, if you walked down the street one day and you saw people being crucified, here's the first thing you thought. I wonder what he did to deserve that. I wonder what he did to get him nailed to that cross. That was their assumption. Evidently, he's done really something wrong. And yet, this criminal recognizes Jesus is not a criminal. I belong here. You belong here. He does not belong here. In fact, he says this man has done nothing wrong. But it wasn't just that. He doesn't just recognize that Jesus is a sinless man. He recognizes Jesus is a sovereign man and a saving man. Listen to verse 42. Then he said, Jesus, now listen to these two words. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, are you believing this? Dude, just 10 minutes ago, you were raking Jesus over the coals. Just 10 minutes ago, or maybe an hour ago, you were blaspheming Jesus just like 
this man was. But now you've gone from blasphemer to believer. He says, Jesus, I'm guilty, but you're guiltless. I'm a criminal, but you're a king. I'm hopeless, but you're my only hope. I am a sinner, and you are the Savior. In my opinion, you're looking at maybe the most amazing example of transformation and salvation in the entire Bible and all of history. Because remember, he just called Jesus a king. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, no man in history ever looked less like a king at that moment than Jesus did. Now, let me warn you something. If you'd gone back 2,000 years ago and you'd been standing at the foot of that cross and you saw what Jesus really looked like and you had a weak stomach, you wouldn't have been hurling insults. You would have been hurling something else. He was caked in dirt and blood. He lost all control of his bodily functions. The smell of urine and excrement coming from his body filled the air. He was beat beyond recognition. The sight of Jesus and the sin of Jesus would have made you absolutely sick to your stomach. This criminal is not looking at a risen Jesus with a crown on his head. He's looking at a crucified Jesus with a cross on his back. And he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Wait a minute. He had never seen Jesus walk on the water. He had never seen Jesus feed the multitudes. He had never seen Jesus turn water into wine. And yet, he asked Jesus to save him when it looks like he's the one that needs saving. Jesus was never less believable than he was at that moment, and yet, at the least likely moment in this man's life, he believed in Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this one thing. Everybody listen carefully. If this man could believe in Jesus hanging on a cross before his resurrection, How can you not believe in the risen Jesus after his resurrection? If he believed in Jesus when he smelled horrible and he looked horrible and he had never ever looked less like a king and more like a criminal in his life, if at that moment that man could say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, if he could place his faith in Jesus in a crucified Savior before the resurrection, how can you not place your faith in a risen Lord after the resurrection? It's unbelievable. But we still have our answer to the question. So what did change this man's mind? How did this man go from being a blasphemer to being a believer? Think about it. He didn't know anything about the virgin birth. He didn't see angels singing at the cradle. He didn't know anything about the shepherds visiting in Bethlehem. He didn't know anything about the wise men. He didn't know anything about Old Testament prophecy. He wasn't there when Jesus made blind people see and deaf people hear and crippled people walk. He wasn't there when Jesus stopped a howling open storm, open water storm in his tracks with just three words. He didn't hear the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't even see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. This is the first time he ever laid eyes on the man. And yet, even though it was his last chance to come to Jesus, he came to Jesus the first chance he got. 
what happened? Why the change? How the transformation? Well, there's only one thing we know that happened. We talked about it in an earlier message. He had just heard Jesus utter the very first words he ever said from the cross. You remember what they were? He records just a few verses earlier. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Now, those words evidently pierced his heart. They echoed in his ears because even while he was blaspheming Jesus and insulting Jesus and, and cursing Jesus, Jesus looked at him and Jesus looked at him and Jesus looked at them and Jesus said, Father, forgive them. But they don't know what they're doing. And I believe that when that thief heard Jesus say those words, <laughs> he thought, wait a minute. Only God can forgive others. And only the Son of God would ask God to forgive others for what they were doing to him. And I'm going to tell you what I believe happened at that moment. All of a sudden, there was a word that came alive to this man. All of a sudden, there was a word, and, and, and in his heart, this man said, now I know what that word means, and that word was grace. He saw grace in the actions of Jesus. He heard grace in the words of Jesus. He felt grace in the love of Jesus. And even though nobody else may have known what they were doing, this man realized what he was doing. He finally realized, I'm dying in my sin, but Jesus, you're dying for my sin. And at that moment, he saw what was really happening. And here's what was happening. Jesus took the guilt that we deserve so we could get the grace that we don't deserve. Jesus took the guilt that we deserve so that we could get the grace that we don't deserve. He said, Jesus, remember me. You come into your kingdom. You know, I was telling Teresa just a minute ago, we were sitting there, and she always wants a sneak preview of my sermon, and I won't give it to her. She doesn't. She has no idea what I'm going to say. In fact, when I'm dictating in my basement, you know, sometimes she'll come downstairs, and you got to leave. I'm dictating my sermon. You know, this is top secret. So we were sitting there, we were talking just a minute ago. I said, you know, I said, two words can radically change your life. You ever thought about that? For example, I do. <laughs> to which she said, you better. Your life's changed. You're fired. It can change your life. I'm leaving. Your life's changed. This thief, two words, remember me. Life changed forever. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, I'm a criminal and you're a king. I, I'm getting what I deserve. You're taking what you don't deserve. You're taking what you don't deserve so I can get what I don't deserve, and I am requesting your grace. Let me tell you something. That criminal is making the right choice. He said, I am going with you. Now, look what happens. This is, watch how this story ends. Once you realize personal guilt, and once you request spiritual grace, then you receive eternal glory. Now, watch this. Watch what happens. Above the cackle of the crowd, Jesus hears the cry of this criminal. And his two-word request, remember me. And Jesus goes far above and beyond what this man was asking for. 
far and beyond and beyond. He said, Lord, remember me. And Jesus said just two words, and this man couldn't believe it. Today, paradise. Today, paradise. Today, paradise. I mean, you talk about a life preserver to a drowning man. You talk about hitting the lottery. You talk about getting the unexpected and the undeserved. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. All this man asked for was a seat in the back of the bus. And Jesus says, oh no, you're going first class today. Not tomorrow, not the next day, and not in a corner somewhere where nobody will ever see you. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, this is the only time in the Bible where anybody is ever saved at the exact last moment just before they die. And I'll tell you why I believe that story is in the Bible. Because it tells me two things. You ready? No one is ever so lost that they can't come to Jesus. And it is never too late for anybody to come to Jesus. Did you hear me? Nobody's so lost, they can't come to Jesus. And it is never too late to come to Jesus. Now, Jesus gives this man the only thing he needs to know to make sure he spends eternity with God. What does he give him? His word. What else could he give him? That's all the man had to go on. Jesus just said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And look what happened. Because of the faith of this man and because of the grace of Jesus, he lives happily ever after. Now, have you ever thought about what a day this was for that thief? I mean, think about it. <laughs> he begins the day being crucified on a cross, and he ends the day being carried to a kingdom. In the morning, he's in prison. At noon, he's in punishment. And in the evening, he's in paradise. By the way, that word for, for paradise, it comes from a Persian word. That means a walled park or an enclosed garden. Here's, here's the, the, the story behind that yard word. Whenever a king wanted to invite someone into a real intimate relationship with him, whenever a king wanted to develop a real friendship with someone, he would not just invite them to a palace. He would invite them to take a walk in his private garden. Every king had a private garden. So it'd be kind of like the president saying, you're not just coming to the White House, you're coming to the Oval Office. We're going to sit right across from each other. We're just going to talk in fellowship. That's what that word paradise refers to. It refers to this walled garden of a king. So in other words, when Jesus entered into heaven, this man was not just trailing behind him at a distance. This man was going to be right by his side. That phrase, by the way, that Jesus used, it literally means to be with someone in a very personal, intimate way. It means to be in the personal presence of another person, to be right beside him. This thief, can you believe this? This thief, this thug, this murderer, this terrorist, this freedom fighter, this insurrectionist, this rebel, he's going to receive eternal glory simply because he recognized personal guilt and he requested spiritual grace. Now, let me stop. Remember, let's see how well you know the story. So, somebody tell me this out loud. Somebody answer this out loud. What did this guy have to offer Jesus in return? Somebody tell me. Now, nothing. I mean, he had no righteousness to offer Jesus. He had no good works. He had no certificates of good conduct. He was not... Um, you know, get, didn't get an honorable discharge from, 
the military. He had no ritual he could offer. He'd never been baptized. He'd never taken the Lord's Supper. He had no religion he could offer. He, he'd never been um, attended catechism. He had never been confirmed. He didn't have a church membership. He didn't have offering receipts. He'd never even gone to church. This man had no resources and absolutely no reason to give for being, his being allowed into paradise. And yet, he was immediately granted entrance with full privileges, all the rights and all the privileges of a full-pledged citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And all it took was the grace of the Savior and the faith of the sinner. That's it. Remember me. Sure, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, we answer the question. Many of you have never thought about it. So let's ask it. Why were there three crosses? I mean, you do understand we only needed one, right? Everybody got that? I mean, the only one that matters is the man in the middle. The other two don't matter. The other two can't help me. The only thing that matters, the only reason why we celebrate Easter today has nothing to do with the thief on the left, nothing to do with the thief on the right. It's all about the man in the middle. So you only needed one. Well, why three? Why not six? Why not two? Why not ten? Why not just one? Because the only one that we needed was the one with Jesus on it. And by the way, have you ever wondered why Jesus was in the center? You know, why wasn't he on the far right? Why was he on the far left? I'll tell you why. Because we're looking at something right now that better be on your bucket list before you die. Because if it's not, you're not ready to die. You see, these two criminals represent the entire human race. Because ultimately, let me tell you how this whole world's divided. It's not divided geographically. It's not divided racially. It's not divided economically. It's not even, di even divided politically. It's not even divided by good people and bad people. You know how this whole world's divided? We're divided by the cross of Jesus Christ. You're on one side of Jesus or the other side of Jesus. One man received Jesus. One man rejected Jesus. Now you think about it. Those two criminals who were crucified that day, they had everything in common except one thing. They viewed the man in the middle totally different. One man said, you're no better than I am. You're a criminal just like me. If you're who you are, who you say you are, why don't you save yourself right now? And by the way, why don't you save me too? I'm not having any of you if all you can do is hang on this cross. And the other man said, um, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I'm telling you today, everybody listening to me right now, you're on one side of that cross or you're on the other. It has nothing to do with religion. It has nothing to do with righteousness. It has nothing to do with ritual. It is all about recognizing personal guilt, requesting spiritual grace, and receiving eternal glory. And you know the amazing thing is? One made the wrong choice. One made the right choice. And you know, we don't know the names of either one of those men. You ever thought about that? I don't know who they were. Matter of fact, this is the only time we read about them in the Bible. They both made some bad choices. They both chose the wrong crowd. They both chose the wrong path. They both chose the wrong friends. They both chose the wrong lifestyle. They both chose the wrong morals.
They both chose the wrong behavior. But in the end, one made the right choice. And one made the wrong choice. And it made all the difference in the world and all the difference for eternity. Now, I want you to do me a favor. Close your Bibles, close your notepads, put down your pen. Don't be thinking about what restaurant's open yet, okay? Just hang on. I want you to, everybody give me your undivided attention. Back in January, I was speaking at a church up in Tennessee, and I happened to be speaking with Coach Hugh Freeze, who's the head football coach at the University of Mississippi. And he told this story, and I, and I wrote it down because when I heard this story, I said, that's one of the best stories I've ever heard in my life, and i got to tell it to you because it really has everything to do with this Easter message. How many of you saw the movie The Blind Side? How many of you saw that movie? Okay, some of you did. A lot of you did. Well, the movie The Blind Side is about a football player named Michael Oher who literally God used football to really deliver him from the slums and, and from the projects and help make him, you know, an NFL football player. Well, Hugh Freeze helped coach him when he was in high school. And so they built this great personal relationship. Well, Coach Freeze used to talk about when he was in high school that the one thing on his bucket list he wanted to do before he died, he wanted to go to Lambeau Field and he wanted to see the Green Bay Packers play one time in Lambeau Field. Out of the blue, he said, years after Michael Orr had gone to the NFL, he got a call one day from Michael and he said, Coach, he said, uh, what are you doing this weekend? He said, well, I don't know, Michael. What do you want to do? He said, well, Coach, I want to take you to Green Bay. We're playing the Green Bay Packers. And I want you to go with me to see the Green Bay Packers. I want to take you to Lambeau Field. I mean, Coach Free said he couldn't believe it. It was something he always wanted to do. It was on his bucket list. So Coach Free said that he, he drove to the airport. They were going up in a private chartered plane, and everybody's getting on the plane. And he said, you started to get on the plane, and the security guard stepped in in front of him. He said, sir, excuse me, you, you can't get on this plane. Michael Oher stepped beside him. He said, uh, he's with me. Got on the plane. He said they landed, they got off the plane, and they, cars were waiting on them, and he started getting this nice limousine, and this limousine driver said, sir, I'm sorry, you're, you're not on the list. Michael Oher said, he's with me, got in the car. He said they drove to the team hotel, and they'd shut the hotel down for all, you know, everybody except the NFL players that were there, and he said they were all you know, about to walk in, and he says he got to the front of the hotel. He said this um, bellhop stood in front of him. He said, sir, I'm sorry. You can't get in here. This is just for the NFL team and for the players and the, and the staff. And Michael Ower walked up. He said, he's with me. They got in. He said, got on the team bus and they drove to Lambeau Field for the game. And he said, they started going to the players' locker room. And he said, you know, he was behind Michael Ower. And Ower walks in. He starts walking. This big brother security guard steps in. He said, sir, I'm sorry. You're not allowed in here. Michael Ower looked back. He said, uh, uh, he's with me. He got in the locker room. He said, they went out on the field to watch the team warm up. He said, they're about to go out on the field. And he said, everybody was running, running out there. And he was excited. And he was running out. And he said, this big security guard grabbed his arm and said, hey, man, where are you going? And Michael Orr said, uh, he's with me. And he let him go. And Coach Free said, you know, the only thing I had to offer to get on that private plane and to get into that hotel and to get into that locker room and to get on that field. He said, the only thing I had to offer was Michael Orr. He said, if I'd have said, I'm Hugh Freeze, and I coach a little bitty high school team in Mississippi. 
He said, they'd have said, bye-bye. He said, if I'd have said, I'm Hugh Freeze, and I pay my taxes, and I'm a good man. He said, they'd have said, bye-bye. He said, look, I'm Hugh Freeze. Don't I look like a nice guy? Just let me in. He said, they'd have said goodbye. All I had was Michael Owen. Now I want you to imagine Jesus freezes last. That thief freezes last. They get to the gates of heaven. And here's a criminal, a thug, a terrorist, a murderer, an assassin, a thief. And he starts to walk in. And this angel steps in front of him and says, I know you. I got to file that nick on you. You murdered this guy. You robbed that bank. You stole from that mother. You took that money. You did this. You did that. You're not getting in here. I know what you are. I know what you did. And you know that you're guilty of everything I just said you're guilty of. You can't get in here. And then Jesus puts his arm around him. And what do you think he says? He's with me. So you get to heaven. You die. You're at the gates. You're about to walk in. And this angel stops you. I know you. I got a file on you that quick. I saw all the lust that you had in your heart. I saw all the anger. I heard all those dirty words that you said. I saw how you cheated on your income tax. I saw how you committed adultery against your spouse. I saw how you didn't go to church half the time. And by the way, your giving record's pretty pathetic. You ain't getting in here. And Jesus puts his arm around your shoulder and says, He's with me. He's with me. There's a choice you have to make. Everybody has to make it. I was playing golf the other day. I'll, I'll close with this. And there was a little cart girl that came around. I didn't want anything and didn't need anything. She started to leave. And I mean, the Lord just spoke to my heart. And I walked around and I said, excuse me. I said, uh, can I ask you a question? She said, sure. I said, uh, do you happen to go to the University of Georgia? Because I was playing out that way. She says, as a matter of fact, I just graduated. She says, I graduate in May and I'm moving to Charlotte, North Carolina. I said, really? I said, there's a great church there. Our executive pastor came from a church in Charlotte. I said, you ought to go to that church. She said, I've never been in church. I said, really? I, I don't go to church. I, I've never been in church. And I said, would you mind if I invited you to my church? And she brightened up. She said, well, nobody's ever invited me to church before. I said, I want to invite you to mine. And then I said, would you mind if I gave you a card? And she said, well, sure. And I gave her a little sure card about how you can know Christ. I said, you know, the message on that card radically changed my life. And I said, if you read the message on that card, it will radically change your life. And I said, can I tell you why that's such a big deal? She said, sure. I said, we're celebrating Easter this weekend. She said, yeah, I know. I said, you know why? She said, well, I'm not, I don't pay that much attention to it. I said, one of two things is true. Either Jesus came out of that tomb or he didn't. 
I said, now, if he didn't, I don't really care what you believe. It doesn't matter to me. But I said, if he did, would you agree that's the game changer? She said, you know what? You're right. I said, well, let me get a minute. Read that card. She teared up. She said, I've never had anybody talk to me like that. She said, I'd be glad to. We went on to the next tee, and I watched that girl. She's supposed to be going around, you know, selling, you know, refreshments and all that. She drove 15 yards and stopped that cart and got out of that cart and started reading that card. Now, I don't know who this man was when he lived, but I do know where he went after he died. He lived a wasted life, but he didn't die a wasted death. So you can recover from a wasted life. You cannot recover from a wasted death. So just hear this and we're done. Three crosses stood beside the Damascus Road that day. The man in the center died for sin. The man on one side died in sin, and the man on the other side died to sin. Everybody's going to die one of two ways. You're going to die in your sin, or you're going to die to your sin. And you've got a choice on which person you'll be and which side of Jesus you take. But you better make sure that the right choice is on your bucket list because the day called Easter, which celebrates the resurrection of our Lord, tells us the only choice to make. Let's pray together.